Welcome to the Modern Merriman Podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Merriman is a podcast of the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that church leaders and Christian lay people will rightly divide the word of truth. Hey, Tom, it's good to see you again. Hey, John, good to see you too, man. And uh, today we want to uh, keep talking about antinomianism. Uh, last episode, we began by uh, looking at what antinomianism is and uh, considering some of the arguments that antinomianism has made and uh, showing how really antinomianism doesn't rightly understand God, it doesn't rightly understand Christ and his work. And uh, so coming here to to this time then, maybe fleshing this out a little more, how would you say we can avoid antinomianism? I love a quotation from uh, Sinclair Ferguson, which says, the only cure for antinomianism is the gospel. Amen. Nothing short of Jesus Christ. So, you know, the central problem with antinomians, as we talked about in the last episode, is that they don't see the goodness and grace of God. And so they can't see the goodness and grace of God's law. And then that means that the only solution is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Because a gospel is what persuades us of God's good character. Mm-hmm. If you ever doubt God's goodness and grace, where do you look? You look unto Jesus. You look at his person. You look at his work. And who was he? He was willing to humble himself to come into this world and dwell among sinners who hated and despised him. Mm-hmm. He was willing to suffer insults and great sorrow in order to love sinners throughout his whole ministry. Mm-hmm. And what did he do in his ministry? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry. He cast out demons. He was so patient with mm-hmm. his disciples who often didn't understand what he was teaching. The Lord Jesus never lost his temper. He never became irritated, but always loved with perfect grace. And so if anyone doubts the goodness and the grace of God, then they must look there at Christ and at his cross to look at the Lord Jesus hanging upon the tree, bearing the wretched sins of his people in his body, to look at his nail-pierced hands and the wound at his side, to consider how he embraced the wrath of God for the sins of his people and then conquered the grave and rose from the dead. And he did it all, not under coercion, not in a way that he was bound, but freely, willingly, out of love for his people. Mm. And, if, and then if you're persuaded of the goodness of, and graciousness of God by looking unto Jesus, then you will be persuaded of the goodness of God's gracious law. Mm. You'll be convinced that God sent his son from a heart of goodness of love. And if, and if you are, then you must, it must also be true that God gave his law from a heart of goodness and love. Mm-hmm. The same heart that gave the Lord Jesus also gave the good law of God. And if you look closely at the Son of God, you'll find that what you love about him is he kept the law. Mm-hmm. He never lied, but always told the truth. He never stole, but he always gave. He never murdered, but he always protected and promoted life. He never rebelled against his heavenly father, but always submitted, or his earthly father. Mm -hmm. He never took advantage of women, treated them instead with sincere love and kindness. And the point is that if if you know what God is like, then you will believe that God could only give a good and gracious law. Mm -hmm. That's all he can do is give a good law. 
And you'll begin to see the goodness and the beauty and the wisdom of God's law as you look into the face of Jesus, who perfectly embodies it. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And not only that, but you'll be uh, convinced by the promises of the gospel to obey the law. Hmm. Now, I want to be clear here. There's some people who preach the gospel in a legal way to make you feel guilt so that you'll obey the law. Let me give you an example of this. I'll say, look at all Jesus did for you. The least you can do for him in return is obey. Mm. Or Christ gave his very life for you. Is it too much for him to ask you to come to church on Sunday? (laughs) Or Christ suffered so much more than you've ever suffered. You need to stop complaining and coveting and be content. But that, do you see how what that's doing? That's turning the gospel into a law and using the gospel as a way to beat people. And it's really not the gospel that, that people are using when they, when they preach that way. Uh, rather, pr- if you preach the gospel rightly, it, it greatly strengthens our motives, reasons, and duties to obey God's good law, our sense mm-hmm. of duty to obey God's law. So, for example, beloved, Christ died for your sins because he loves you. His loveliness is on display and that he freely and absolutely saves you through his person and work. And knowing his great love and loveliness, how could you not love him back? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you love one who is so lovely? See the beauty of his commands, which he gives you for your own good. The beauty of God uh, of the law is clear from Christ himself who kept the law perfectly. Don't you admire and adore such a great savior? Now, out of love for you and for your own good, he commands your obedience and love. He calls you to honor him for your own good because he loves you and he's already accomplished your total salvation. So won't you obey his commandments Hmm. and love him and love others as he calls you to? And so the way to avoid antinomianism is to know and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel persuades us of God's goodness, of his care, of his affection of his redemptive intention toward us so that we understand that his law is given to us not to hurt us but for our good and our good in christ and our good in this world amen amen so then what else would you say we need to know in avoiding antinomianism um including any doctrinal distinctions that that would be important for us to to remember yeah well just as we need to understand and believe the gospel to avoid antinomianism, we also need to understand the law to mm-hmm. avoid antinomianism. And there's <clears throat> there's two major distinctions we need to understand to avoid antinomianism, distinctions of law. Mm-hmm. So now we, we're talking about the gospel, which is the heart of the issue. The main problem among antinomianism is they don't get the gospel right. right. Uh, right. But the, the other problem of antinomianism is they don't get the law and they don't understand a couple of distinctions. So first, we need to understand the division of, of God's Old Testament law. Antinomians often conflate the, the, the phrase, the law of God, with the whole Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And they say that, that they point to passages of the New Testament which teach the Old Testament law is fulfilled. And they say that means we have nothing to do with Old Testament law anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they look at the whole thing as a unit and they say, it's, if any of it's gone, it's all gone. It's all irrelevant, right, mm-hmm. to the Christian. Jesus has, 
has done away with the Old Testament law, but the Bible teaches there's a division of Old Testament law, which I believe we talked about in the previous in previous episodes, but mm-hmm. um, the old covenant as a whole has been fulfilled and abolished in Christ. That's true. So uh, the covenant, the laws of the old covenant are abo- abolished in their old covenant form because now we're in the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of the laws of the old covenant are simply repeating and explaining the more basic law of nature, mm-hmm. which is rooted in God's character. And that is immutable. That's the moral, natural law of God, which we've talked about here before. So when the Old Testament gives us laws that reflect God's unchanging nature and even explains those laws, and those laws are also given in nature and in our consciences, then those laws are still binding. And if we study the scriptures carefully, we'll see the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law of God, which is rooted in his own character and reflected in nature itself. Right, which is why we so often refer back to this uh, distinction that that we need to remember between the natural law or the moral law of God with the positive law that God gives through covenant. And we we shouldn't uh, confuse the two uh, or, or conflate them somehow to treat God's moral or positive law or his uh, natural or moral law as his positive law, or <laughs> frankly, the opposite, where we take his positive law as if it's his natural or moral law, right? Yeah. And of course, the moral law of God is that which is reflective of God's own character. It's revealed in creation and conscience and also in the Bible, <clears throat> God's moral law, but it's it's rooted in his character. But positive law are laws that God simply posits or decrees or asserts. That word positive, it doesn't, it's not like it's the opposite of negative. The word positive in this, in the sense in which we're using it here, and the historic reform historic theologians used it, means to assert. Mm-hmm. So if I posit a statement, I'm asserting a statement. And so some of God's laws are simply laws that he asserts that have no necessary moral root in himself. Mm-hmm. but that they might have been something other than what they were. So imagine all the complex laws of the old covenant uh, having to do with the sacrificial system and the priesthood. Is every little detail of that rooted in God's moral character? Absolutely not. It's mm-hmm. not that like God was just showing the, the, uh, the holiness code as a way to show that detailed obedience is what's required to him. And it is all that which he used to point to Christ. You know, another good example is a tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil and the garden. Did it have to be a tree? You know, I mean, God said, don't eat of this tree. Uh, he could have, you know, I guess made it a bush or a rock, you know, don't, don't, don't touch that rock right there, that big stone, the boulder, you know, or here's a river. I don't want you to cross this river. He could have done anything he'd wanted mm-hmm. as a test, you know, but mm-hmm. pos- God posited a tree and there are good reasons for it. I'm not saying it's arbitrary, but it's not uh, inherently moral, like do not murder. Right. And do not commit adultery or do not steal. Absolutely. And, and so, uh, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that those positive laws have any uh, less authority or, or requirement for us to, to keep uh, in, within the, the covenant that, that they're given, right? But it's, yeah, it's If this, you're in that covenant. Exactly. That's right. And that, that's the key thing is that, mm-hmm. you know, King, King David was not required to be baptized and take the Lord's Supper lest he sin. Mm-hmm. 
he wasn't in the new covenant, <laughs> right? He was in the Mosa- in the old covenant, and and so he was not in sin to not obey the commandments of the new covenant. But mm-hmm. we would be in sin not to receive baptism and not to take the Lord's supper uh, if we're if we trust in the Lord and if we're in the new covenant. But likewise, mm-hmm. we are not in sin for for not performing the sacrificial system or the the judicial code of the old covenant. We're not in sin for that. Right, right. So, so in in this, but not only then are we to make this distinction between, of course, natural law and positive law, or moral law and positive law, but it also seems that there is this confusion or this fail to distinguish with antinomianism, uh, the law as a covenant with the law as a rule or standard or guide. Right. Yes. So where in the first distinction, the antinomians just say all law. If any law is gone, it's all gone. They just abrogate mm-hmm. the whole, right? Mm-hmm. But this other one is is really important, just as important. This failure to distinguish between the law as a covenant, and the law as a rule or a standard. Uh, I think this is the most crucial one um, that antinomians simply teach that we're free from the law, and they don't make any distinctions when they say that. But but we need to understand that we're free from the law as a covenant of works. Mm-hmm. We're free from the law which says, do this and live. If you study Galatians, that's exactly what it's saying. And if the, you know, the whole book is devoted to this understanding of you're free from the law as a way to, to be justified, as a way to have a title to, to life and your salvation. Um, so the law as a covenant in Christ is abolished. We're free from the law as a covenant, totally. But we are not free from the law as a standard or rule of conduct. The right. law as a standard, a way to think of it is it's simply a, the naked law with no promises or threats. Mm-hmm. It's, it's only the, the precepts of the Ten Commandments. And so the law as a, a standard just reveals the rule by which God calls us to live our lives in love. Because that, that law as a standard is a transcript or reflection of God's own character in Christ. It's the laws of standard is the very definition of love to God and love to other people. It shows us how to live lives of love from the heart and the laws of standard is spiritual, you know, so it's, it not only reveals how we're to externally conduct ourselves, but it shows us the way our hearts should be. And this is, I, this is what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and 6, you know, especially chapter 5, mm-hmm. where he is showing the spirituality of the law, you know, that it's not enough just not to murder outwardly. The law never intended that. The law never intended that you could keep the commandment not to murder just by not murdering outwardly. Rather, it was always if you are murderously angry, that's also murder. You know, mm-hmm. if you use your words to murder people, you fool, that's murder, you know? Mm-hmm. So the law as a standard defines love from the heart and it's spiritual and it's reflective of God's own character. So now as Christians, though, we have to remember that God gives us the law as a standard in the context of gospel indicatives. Mm-hmm. So God never just looks at Christians and says, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. We have the whole Bible. Well, you know, the, every one of those commandments comes in the context of the, the covenants that we have. And so the, the law of God comes to, to the Christian 
who's in the covenant of grace uh, and in the new covenant in a promissory or covenantal context. And here's what it says. The covenant of grace says Christ died for your sins. Mm -hmm. He fulfilled all righteousness out of love for you. He will never let you go. He will never condemn you or shame you. Your obedience can never increase or diminish your justification or adoption. So, knowing God's great love for you, His law teaches you how to express your love for Him. And to express your love for God and others, you must, you must keep His good law as a very rule of love itself. And Jesus is your example. And as you do this, you will grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. You will grow in communion with him. You will grow in manifesting his likeness to others, which is your joy and also glorifies him. And so that's, that's why I believe it's so important to affirm the gospel as a covenant. You know, I've, I've heard some people react negatively when I say that the law as a standard is included as a gospel in, in the gospel covenant. But if we don't say that the law is a standard is included in the gospel as a covenant, then you get the impression that the law as a standard dangles out there without any covenantal context, which provides us with the only right reasons and motives for obedience. Mm. So I submit we need to understand that as Christians, the law comes to us on the basis of the covenantal promises of the gospel. That's the only way we will have right motives in our obedience to him. Right, right. Well, then, in, in thinking about this as Christians, uh, what would you say about uh, our exerting effort to obey God's law? Or is uh, or are our, our good works, do they just flow automatically through our faith? You know, how would you explain that this whole idea of then how we're, we're to uh, pursue this, this holiness biblically? Yeah, I mean, there's a a quietistic, passivistic error that says, just trust in Jesus and let go and let God and your holiness, your obedience will just flow out of you like water, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're a believer. But <laughs> that's not what the Bible teaches. Mm. The Bible says in 2 Peter 1, 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to understand that we have to exert effort on the basis of Christ's free grace. We have to apply ourselves to the means of grace to know more, more of God, Christ's goodness and grace experientially and in our lives subjectively. So we should be diligent to work hard to, uh, to approach the Lord through the public means of grace, the word and the sacrament on the Christian Sabbath. And, and then secondarily, we need to be, working hard, meditating on his word, praying in our private and family lives as well. We also need to have a tender conscience towards sin, be open to conviction from the law of God and, and quick to repent of our sins in a gospel way. None of that just happens automatically. You're not just going to relax into gospel repentance or, you know, growth. Uh, rather, we will only repent when we when we, as an act of faith by faith and, and through, with intentionality and will humble ourselves with godly sorrow and hate and forsake our sins, personally turning to Christ who bought us with a price and then renewing our obedience to God's good law mm -hmm. as the fruit of repentance. The Bible says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so 
Uh, we must do that, and it requires effort. It requires diligence. It requires faithfulness. Um, and so gospel repentance only happens when we work to repent under grace. Mm-hmm. Right. So the Arminians, or not Arminians, well, some <laughs> Arminians if they're antinomians, I guess. But uh, <laughs> It used to not be that way, but it right. is now. So, <laughs> uh, a- a- so antinomians, because that's, that's what we're talking about, often right. speak, though, as though really uh, none of our good works really have any uh, value, right? It's, it's all about Christ and what he's done. Right. Uh, and so what would you say then to the value of good works as a Christian? Yeah, well, the Bible teaches our good works have value, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, while our good works can never merit our salvation and they can't cause or achieve our salvation. The Bible is very clear that our good works please God. Mm -hmm. So one of the motives, just just look it up and, you know, uh, in, in the scriptures about pleasing God and we have to we have to have good works to please him. Now he's pleased with us objectively, obviously, and in justification and as sons, because we're adopted in him. But he he's also pleased with us when we exert effort to obey him. So I love I love the illustration uh, of Christian good works being like a child bringing a drawing to their father. Mm-hmm. So the child's drawing, you know, my daughter might you know, make me a little, I have a little, I have a little girl, you know, mm-hmm. and she might make me a drawing and bring it to me. If I, well, if I judge that by strict artistic standards, it will be condemned. <laughs> right. I mean, because there's no way. She's not a budding Picasso or, uh-uh. or you know, I mean, that artwork is not, that artwork is not justified on its own merits. It is not. But as a father, I receive her artwork as a father, not as a judge. Mm-hmm. You know, a father is pleased with artwork that his child drew it, that his child drew for him because his child drew it for him. Mm-hmm. And he's pleased to overlook all the imperfections and see it for what it is an, an effort to express, you know, love. Hey, daddy, I drew this picture for you. Here you go. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and and so that's that's something like the way our good works please God the father. You know, he, he's pleased with them, not as judge, but as father. They're not filthy rags. So many quote that text that say all of our works are like filthy rags to God. Well, in terms of justification, they are, mm-hmm. but not in terms of sanctification, mm-hmm. not, not uh, t- toward God as judge, they're filthy rags, like as, as a strict, who judges on strict justice, but toward God as, our, as father, our works are not filthy rags. Um, now, when we say, just to clarify here, that our good works please God, we're not suggesting that our good works can change God's internal state. Some mm-hmm. people think, oh, how can I do anything that affects God? Well, you can't. This is an al- analogical way of speaking about God that the Bible speaks to us this way, that as we do faithful good works, what's happening is God treats us in a way that displays his pleasure within us and mm-hmm. within creation. So, for example, uh God rewards our good works with greater knowledge of himself and we experience his favor. You know, in John 14, 21, Jesus says that he will manifest himself to those who keep his commandments. That's, that's how our works please him. You know, as we keep his commandments more and more, he manifests himself, which means we get to know Christ and enjoy communion and fellowship with him more and more as we grow in obedience to his good law. So, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one one, one yeah, other thing to mention here. This is a, sometimes it's a controversial type of a, a of a subject, but um, the believers' good works precede our glorification and the order in which He gives His gifts. Mm-hmm. So that's important to remember. Absolutely. Uh, that we need to be careful to say that good works don't achieve our glorification and heaven. Uh, they don't cause our glorification, merit our glorification, but God dispenses his graces in a certain order, which means he gives good works before he, he gives the good works of sanctification before he gives glorification. And in that sense, good works come before glorification and we must have good works to be glorified. Mm-hmm. There's some who really sh- want to, I think, in our day, shy away from that, but there's no way to make sense of many passages of the Bible unless you say it. It's, right. it's clear that on Judgment Day, our good works will vindicate our faith before all creation, proving that we're joined to Christ. And so we must have works on Judgment Day for our vindication. We must have works in order to glorification. Now, some people will often argue with this and say, what about the thief on the cross? Well, he actually had a lot of good works, believe it or not. He confessed Christ while he was dying and while Christ was over there next to him dying. You know, so his, mm-hmm. he had good works of, that were words. Um, um, but the key thing to realize here is that on Judgment Day, even on Judgment Day, Christ's works alone will be the legal ground of our justification before God, even though our good works are evidentially necessary to prove our union with him. <clears throat> and if you have any good works at all, then you have enough, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like we're looking for a certain amount or, or an, a measure or a number for, for judgment day. Uh, right. But, but that we must have works on judgment day and our good works precede our glorification. Mm-hmm. No, right, right. I, I know right now, both of us are uh, preaching through uh, revelation and um, we, we may not interpret all the specifics the same way, but I, I just I don't see a way to to faithfully uh, preach through Revelation without seeing the very uh, thing you're talking about. That that there are the the works of perseverance uh, which mm-hmm. are expected of God's people uh, mm-hmm. that that will then uh, be vindicated when Christ returns uh, and, uh, you know, brings the in bride, the world to come. The saints are clothed in those white garments, which are the ra- righteous deeds of the saints. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's how Christ's bride is adorned. Amen. So, the, so the point of all this to, is to say good works are valuable. Mm-hmm. They're important. And yeah. they necessarily flow from faith. And so we good. must do them. They're commanded of us, not for yeah. our justification, but for other reasons. So uh, good reasons works don't don't save, right? They're they 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 they're not the basis of our justification. Uh, but but good works are are the fruit then of that union we have with Christ, uh, as He is uh, working out the salvation in us, and and we are working then uh, to will and work for His good pleasure. Mm-hmm. They are part of God saving us. Mm-hmm. Nothing we do, no, our works don't save ourselves. Mm-hmm. That, that's the language to avoid. That there's anything in your works that saves yourself. Rather, your good works are part of God saving you, Amen. and you must do them. And so God Amen. is sovereign, and you're responsible. 
That's an important clarification uh, for us as we continue to stay away from and, and avoid these errors uh, that, that we've been discussing. So I appreciate that, Tom, and want to thank everyone for listening to the Modern Merriman Podcast, the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you'd like to know more about CBTS, please visit us online at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org. The reason I, I'm, I'm bringing this up is, I mean, even when you talk about neonomianism, you know, formally speaking, uh, there are no of the class, you know, the historic neonomians today. But we obviously can point to examples of contemporary legalism, certainly in ministry. Uh, and in some sense, you could probably argue that, that there's not a lot of formal antinomians today in that historic sense. I think even Mark Jones, you know, would say there's some differences. Um, yet, I think we can all point to even a prevalence of antinomianism in a lot of evangelicalism. So moving from kind of these historical examples and biblical examination, which is critical to, you know, how do we avoid it today? That, that was kind of where my mind was uh, going.